All right, welcome to episode 49 of 1530. Today we're going to be talk about the U.S. Open, 22 US o- 2022 U.S. Open just concluded recently, and Carlos Alcarez came out a winner. So we want to talk about what that means for tennis. He's, uh, he's only 19. There's a lot of stats we're going to talk about, a lot of firsts for, for him. It was a pretty amazing run that he had to the final. But uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about a little preview for an upcoming episode, talk about Roger Federer and the big news that he shared with the tennis world. Welcome to 1530. Now introducing your hosts, Ben and Matt. So we'll go ahead and get started with the stat of the day. So the stat of the day is 19. So Carlos Alcaraz is 19 years of age. He's the youngest ever world number one for men's tennis. And he is 3-0 in finals at significant events defined as slams and masters 1000s ATP finals. So he has one slam under his belt now, and he has won two Masters 1000s, one on hard court, one on clay. He's 6-2 and two in, all, in finals in all ATP events, which is pretty amazing. And Rude has been Casper Rude has been his opponent at both hard court events. So this year, Alcaraz won the Miami Masters, which is a Masters 1000, and beat Casper uh, Rude there. And of course, at the U.S. Open, it just concluded he beat Casper Rude in four sets. So... I mean, a lot of superlatives there. Uh, Alcaraz just there's there's so much praise being heaped on him as as such a young player, and he seems really hungry, and he's doing really good in finals. Pretty much every final he's gone, and he's he's almost won. I think there was one five one Masters two fifty and one five hundred. He has not he did not win when he made the finals, but super great level from this kid. Uh, it was fun to watch. He became a very very instant fan favorite at the U.S. Open. U.S. Open, of course, known for kind of a you know, an intense crowd that really, really likes the flair. You know, they embraced Del, Del Potro on his run in 2009 against Federer, who had won five in a row U.S. Opens. But they got behind Del Potro because he just, just had such a great game. And kind of same with Alcarez. They really, the crowd really got behind Alcarez. They also love Tiafo. We'll talk about Francis Tiafo. He had a big, big U.S. Open. But Matt, any thoughts on on Carlitos uh, Alcarez becoming world number one? I think it's fantastic. Um, whatever uh, whatever Rafa did to make himself so dominant, he I guess is keeping it in the the Spaniard family, huh? Passing it down to Alcaraz. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. No, it's it's fantastic. It's it's great to see. Um, I mean, we skipped what like three generations, <laughs> but so uh, we've got we've got some legitimate talent coming up that. Um, and I, I don't think it's just because the big three are getting old and retiring. I think Alcaraz and Sinner and some of these other big names could put up a fight, a legitimate fight with uh, with the big three, even in their prime. And obviously right now they're doing good things. Right. I mean, Alcaraz even said that in one of the, the post conferences or press conferences, sorry. He said, you know, I want to play Federer. This is before Federer, of course, announced his retirement from tennis that the labor cup um, this week will be his last event. He will no longer play any more competitive ATP matches, but it was interesting because Alcaraz said, I want to play Feder." You know, Feder was actually when he was growing up, that was his favorite player. It wasn't actually at all, which you would have, that would have been an easy, easy thought going to the <laughs> Rafa's Academy and being a Spaniard, but he really likes the game game style match style of Feder. 
but he'll never get a chance to play him competitively, I don't think. So, but Alcaraz, he's beaten Djokovic. He's beaten Nadal this year. That was kind of a coming out party that he had, right? So he won the Miami Masters, didn't have to really play anyone huge. But I would think it was the Madrid Masters where he had to go through all those top guys. He beat yeah. Djokovic, beat Nadal on clay in three, I think both are three sets, but that was kind of a coming out party where like, this kid can game. Can he game at the at the Grand Slam at the highest levels of the sport? And he showed that he can. Um, but he's, he's such an amazing player, so hungry. And like you're saying, you know, almost like we skipped a couple generations, right? Like the generation of like Raonic and, the, and Nishikori, they never really saw yeah. a slam. Now you're at Zverev. You know, he was one set away, the 2020 U.S. Open from a slam. Pass, you know, you're, you're kind of jumping that generation to the even, even younger one, which is crazy. But super fun to see new blood in, in tennis. And just his game, his game style is so unique. We'll, we'll talk about that more as we cover the stats. But it's such an interesting blend of really, you know, the spin of Rafa, the, the net game of Federer, the touch, you know, of someone like Murray with an amazing drop shot. I mean, Alcaraz really is the complete package, right? I mean, I'm sure yeah. he can get better and he will get better, but he's got a really fun game. So I, I think he's very, very fun to watch, but. I agreed. And like you said, he is very young. I, I, one of the, I feel like one of the, what's the word I'm looking for? key aspects, key traits that the big three had is their ability to continue to improve their game even when they're on top of the game. And it, right. it was insane. I mean, you watch Federer win slam after slam after slam and then and then you, as you're watching him, you're watching him continue to play better and better and better. It's like, is there a limit? So the question will be, is where I'm going with this is, can Alcaraz create that same magic? Can he, you know, he's at the top now at the age of 19 with the slam under his belt. Can he continue to improve and play consistently the way that they have and, and uh, replicate a little bit uh, what they've had, the success they've had? Yeah, I think that's a great point. Those, if you go, if you want to stay at the top, you need to, you need to get better, right? If you're right. not getting better, you're, you're not going to stay at the top. That's just the reality of the game. There's always yeah. people that are hungry and they're, the other players are getting better. They're trying different tactics. I mean, we can see that now with Nick. Nick Kyrgios being so hungry after the Wimbledon. I think that was something he said at the U.S. Open. He said, I'm surprised how hungry I am because I almost tasted, you know, victories. Like, maybe if I would have won Wimbledon, I wouldn't feel that way. But he's like, I was so close. I know I have the level. And he played amazing. He beat Medvedev. Again, you know, right. Medvedev can't really figure out how to beat Nick, you know, when, when Nick is on. <laughs> it's, uh, so Nick Kyrgios had a pretty good run. He lost to Hatchinoff in a five-setter. So still amazing, but it's he's, just crazy. Yeah. If he's truly hungry, then he's got to work on his physio. Because I, I think he was feeling it a little bit Yeah, in that game against Kachanov. Um, I think that's part of it. He's Two weeks is a long, it's a long, it's a lot of tennis. It's a lot of high, high intensity. So Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see him going forward. Uh, Medvedev, I mean... There was a while, if you would have asked me, you know, because Medvedev won the U.S. Open so conventionally, he had been to the right. Australian Open final a couple couple years in a row. And if you would have asked me, you know, even in January, Australian Open, oh yeah, Medvedev for sure, hardcore king. And he and he was, you know, he was very very close to beating Nadal 
and embarrassing Nadal, right? Right. Straight sets, uh, pretty convincingly. Of course, Nadal came back somehow and won in five. And all of a sudden, now Medvedev, you know, doesn't. I mean, he's still amazing on hardcore, but he's not, doesn't have a stranglehold on it. You know, arguably even better on hardcore than Djokovic. But so now, now it's, now it's to me, it's, it's not, it's not that crazy that U.S. Open is again the one where someone can break through. You know, Del Potro, right. you had, Dominic team, you had Medvedev. Yep. It's easier to steal the one in New York when it's hardcore. It's at the end of the season when everyone's tired, injured. Yep. But you know, with no Roger around, it's clearly Novak at Wimbledon. You know, who knows? Maybe Berrettini could have made some noise had he not been, you know, had COVID and maybe some of the Russians. Medvedev's gotten a lot better on grass, but they were banned this year from Wimbledon. But really, it's it just seems like it's Djokovic's to lose. French Open. Gotta say Nadal if he's healthy, it's kind of his to lose as well. So then you have between the Australian and US Open, that's your best chance for a young gun. So it'll be really interesting at this US or this Australian Open, excuse me, see who can bring it. If Djokovic is allowed to play, he would probably be the favorite because he's won there so many times. But if he's banned again, I mean, I don't necessarily see Nadal, you know, winning that one again. It's a pretty hard one for him to win. So I don't know. It's it seems like the hardcore events are easier for these guys to break through. But I will say Alcarez on clay is pretty scary. You know, Zverev beat him in the quarterfinals this year of Roland Garros. But, uh, you know, that would be a great match to see him and Rafa battling on the clay. Yeah, at Roland Garros. Yeah, if you ask my honest opinion, I think that Rafa's not far behind Roger. Yeah. I mean, you look at the end of this season and, I mean, <laughs> the guy can't get through a match without tearing a muscle in his abdomen. It's like... What yeah. the heck? So as as willing as his spirit is, I think his body is starting. Well, I mean, it has been for a long time. It's incredible what he's played through, but I think he's finally getting the point where it's just too difficult. Yeah, and at some point, like you're saying, I mean, and he does this because he loves, you know, right? He loves the game so much. Remember, he talked about the injections that he was playing with at Roland Garros. Right. But he's like, I wouldn't do it for any other tournament. You know, there's there's only so much you're willing to do to play at that high level, and then even then. You know, it's almost not worth it at the end of the day. Right. Um, he's even talked about how, you know, he was saying some interesting things at the press conference of US Open, like, you know, his wife is pregnant and he has, he has made right. comments before about when he has children, he wants to step away from the game and make have a new phase of life, you know, yeah. move on and do other things and have a family. So I don't know if that's this season, you know, or if it's, you know, Roland Garros. Here, I'm not sure. I just, what you're saying with him phys- physically and with him, the comments he's made about his family and when his wife, his wife is currently pregnant. I do think that window is shrinking, not for him to win. I think he could continue to compete, especially at Roland Garros, but True. if he wants to, and if his body is, you know, cause he's probably fighting something at every tournament now with his age and his right. style. So like you're saying, to your point, I do think he'll want to exit the game on top and on his terms and not, being completely broken down. So again, I don't yeah, know if Garros, or honestly, if he retired at the Australian Open or start of the season, that and he doesn't want to do the farewell farewell tour, he kind of his comments made it where it could be open to interpretation. That's something he could do. You know, he left it open yeah. to that, I think. But obviously the greats let them decide the way they want to exit. That's not for us to tell them what to do. <laughs> it's just <laughs> trying to trying to predict and see. You know, right. is Roland Garros going to be wide open this next year, or is Nadal going to make another go? You know, right. And that's where you hope that these 
that Alcaraz and these other players can really step up because the last thing I want is for Djokovic to be the only one that fills the void. It's like, right. Oh man. We don't need to remind listeners, right. It's 22 titles for Nadal, 21 for Djokovic, 20 for Federer. And Federer's looks like it's set in stone forever, which it probably was going to be anyways, even with a farewell tour. But yeah, if Nadal stays in it, he can win some more French opens Djokovic, you know, if, if the new, I won't even call him next gen anymore, but if Alcaraz and some of these other players that are asserting their dominance don't go away, you know, they, they could win some titles too. Casper Rude, I mean, we, we should do an episode on him. He's been such an improved player. He made two slam finals this year. He went from just being a clay court specialist to being really, really dominant on hard court. His game has really, really improved. And he actually had good chances to to get back into that final, never really quite got back into it enough to challenge Alcaraz, but he, he definitely made it a final. So I think there's a lot of players that can that can that can take it to whoever's whoever's lasting, you know, whoever decides to stick around. If it's if it's Nadal and Djokovic, I think there's players that can challenge them. Yep. Agreed. But we'll, let's, uh, let's jump real quick into the stats and kind of cover that. So let's look here at the final. So one comment I want to make about Alcaraz. So looking at the stats from the whole final or from every match he played in the U.S. Open, he didn't have any aces. Uh, he didn't ever have double-digit aces in any match. Even some of the five-setters, like against Chilich, you know, against – he had several five-setters. Tiafo, Sinner, he never had above like eight aces. But in the final, he really upped his game and had 14 aces, which – and only three double faults. So it's almost like his serving just got kind of better and better as he went on. But again, you know, his his serve is very effective, very, you know, spinny. I would say, you know, it's uh when he when he was aver- he was averaging some first serves, you know, in the 115s, something like that, but he places it really well. He finds his spots. Kind of reminds me a little bit of a Feder spot serving. Similar speed, but he probably has more spin. So in that way it's similar to Nadal's serve, but maybe a little faster. So it's usually not an acing serve, you would say, but he he dialed it in in the final, which really helped him. Casper only had four aces to Alcaraz's 14, which really helped him. He won 74% of his first serve points to Casper's 66%. Second serve, this is one where it's interesting, the battle of the second serve points. Alcaraz actually wasn't as, wasn't as good as Rude. He got won 51% and Rude won 65% on his second serve. But overall... Um, well, actually, net points are this is another thing I love about Alcaraz. So he went to net 45 times and won 34 of those points for a 76% win rate at net. So sometimes you see the 76%, and it's something like the doll where you go 10 times and you win, you know, eight or seven or eight of those points, which is great. But Alcaraz is going, you know, 45 times to the net. This is in four sets. That's that's quite a bit. That's uh. That's like a number that you'd see on this, one of these big servers like Isner or someone that goes to net a lot. So it's cool to see that Alcaraz, he, he's not afraid of going to the net. He's very effective at finishing there. has very good hands. Like I said, makes it makes it pretty fun to watch because sometimes you're not used to seeing you know, someone that has such a good baseline game also complement that with, with finishing points at the net. Break points were, were comparable here, though. And this is where I see one of his weaknesses in some of the matches that Alcaraz has played. He's been up. In matches, but he's not able to put away people like Tiafo, where he yeah. was serving for four sets, uh, or or was trying to push it and win in four sets instead of got pushed to five. So he won only three out of eleven break points, and Rude won three out of ten. 
this is something where I've seen his his break point ratio not be as good. And maybe we'll see that improve as he figures out these bigger moments. But again, with his talent, he's he's still he still won the US Open. So no knock on him. Overall, receiving points were very similar, 34% each. So and overall, he only won five more points than Casper Rude did. So 127 to 122. Like I said, I think Rude really went in and made it made it more of a more of a fight. Overall distance covered per point. It's an interesting stat. 52 feet uh, for each person per point. Now that's a ton if you look at any other comparison matches. You know, a lot of them are in the 40s. Um, but I did look at the one where I remembered Medvedev and Nadal covering so many, so much court in 2019 at the US Open. There's where theirs was about 60 feet per point. So not quite Nadal Medvedev-esque, but these guys were moving all around the court, making each other really work for the points. And it was overall a pretty high quality final. I don't know if you have any comments on that, Matt, on the on the final. No, I think he covered them all. Yep. It is interesting to see his break chance, his break point conversion rather. Yeah. Um, to be so low. Something yeah, it looks like it was sure. better against Tiafo. It, it was 9 out of 20, 45%. What was the one? I think it might have been uh, Sinner where it was really low. But to Sinner's credit, he's a very high <coughs> – pardon me. He's a pretty high-risk player. He likes to go for the uh, you know, for the first strike tennis. So a lot of times he would serve really big and then hit a big forehander back in for a winner. So he was saving quite a few break points. But it was also – Alcaraz is missing a lot of opportunities. So it looks like against Sinner, his breakpoint ratio was 11 out of 26. So what is that? That's that's definitely less than 50%. Right. Um, looks like that's that's 42%. Um, so not horrible, but again, he's you know he's having a lot of a lot of opportunities that are kind of kind of wasting there. Uh, six out of 18. So 33% against Marin Cilic. That went five sets. Again, it seems like even with his talent, if he dials in those breakpoint chances and knows when to go for it um, or when to play it safer to try to convert more breakpoints, I think I think that will really benefit him because that was just one thing I noticed from the stats. Quick look at it that he could have definitely done better on. Uh, let's see. I guess while we're looking at the center match, uh, that was a pretty pretty dynamic one. If you're looking for great highlights, great quality, both players are are young and very talented. Alcaraz, I think, actually has a negative head-to-head. Yannick Sinner's won more matches against him, but and he beat him at Wimbledon this year. But I, I think we're going to see more of these guys in the future. And the, to me, that that had the that had the quality, and the crowd was so into it, it felt like a final, even though it was only a quarterfinal. But in the first serve points, one they were very very similar in the 60s, 64, and 63 percent. Uh, on the second serve, Alcaraz, that's really where he differentiated himself. He won 65% to Yannick Sinner's 51%. So I think that's, again, it goes to show Yannick Sinner on the first serve. That's really where he where he does really, really well. Sometimes in those rallies on the second serve, Alcaraz was able to take advantage. And that, that ultimately was the difference maker. Sinner stole two tie breaks, but still lost in five sets, even though he was up two sets to one. But that was, uh, again, very high-quality tennis there. Tiafo, Matt, did you hear any much about Tiafo? I know he beat your, beat your guy, Nadal. Did you hear much about that? Yeah, he was playing well. Um, I think he was obviously the last American in. Um, and, yeah, America, 
I mean, it's the U.S. Open. We had more Americans in there than usual, and yeah, we did really poorly. <laughs> I think <laughs> Tiafo was one of like two, maybe that made it to the second week. Not great, but yeah, there were um, um, no, but he he played fantastic against Rafa and played good tennis against Alcaraz too. But ultimately, ultimately fell. Let's see. You can. Yeah, I'm looking I'm looking up some stats real quick on that. I know, I definitely want to look at that one there. It was still amazing too. Tiafo was able to beat um, Rublev, who he's had troubles with in the past, and not only beat him but beat him in straight sets. It was pretty amazing to see. And Rublev, I didn't feel like played that badly. Tiafo just really raised his game. But I wanted to look real quick at the uh, to your point, Nadal. When it, when I looked at the stats, they looked very, very close. It looked like it just came down to a few break points here and there, but they looked very competitive. I think Nadal even won a few more. So Tiafo won in four sets. Interestingly, no tie breaks as well, which is sometimes in a tight match, you can kind of steal it with some tie breaks. But even then, with the serve factor, because both guys served, even percentage is almost identical. 76% for Tiafo for first serve points. Nadal 74. Second serve, they swap. Tiafo won 65% of his second serve to Nadal. Hey ben, I'm going to have to. You can keep talking. I'm sorry to interrupt this, but I got to take care of something super. So uh, for for Tiafo against the, he was able to really take advantage of these break points. So it looks like he converted five of eight to Nadal's two of six. Overall, Tiafo won 120 points to Nadal's 110. And he had 18 aces to Nadal's nine, but Nadal did have nine double faults. So it looked like he was just really able to take advantage, even though it's a super tight match where the numbers were so, so close, razor thin, and really just kind of exchanged 60, you know, six fours, six threes sets. Um, but even just from watching, it was just amazing that the big shots that he was coming at Nadal with, he was not backing down, he was playing very aggressive, and he took his chances and he played very well. It was, it was surprising to see Jaffo play that well and not to play passive, and he kind of played that way throughout which was pretty awesome to watch. We look, move on to Medvedev and Kyrgios. Again, Medvedev just can't seem to figure out Kyrgios, especially on the hard court. It's kind of a bummer, but Kyrgios just played like dynamite. He won 62% points at the net, did a lot of serve volume, went to the net 47 times in four sets. He had 53 winners to, actually Medvedev 49 winners, that's still quite a bit. Overall, Nick won nine more points, 128 points, 119. And both guys, uh, they did ace quite a bit. Medvedev actually out-aced Kyrgios, 22-21. to 21. So it was pretty surprising that that Nick was able to win in, in the fashion that he did. 7-6, 3-6, 6-3, 6 So it looks like a lot of the numbers here are pretty tight. Um, winning on second serve points. Looks like that's the difference for Kyrgios. I wouldn't have guessed a Kyrgios. Would have won more points on second serve, 46 to 44. And on first serve, they were identical at 75%. So really, it looks like to me, it came down to the break points because they look pretty identical here on their percentages. The net points, or excuse me, the break points were 5 of 7 for Kyrgios, 71% to Medvedev's 3 of 8, 38%. So Medvedev, I don't know whatever it is, but it's that was a close one that he... Couldn't figure out, couldn't solve the Nick Kyrgios puzzle there and couldn't get the break. So one last thing I wanted to look at. So for the match insights with Watson, the Watson computer, this is the before the final happened. They only gave Alcaraz a 52% chance 
to win, probability to win over Rude, which I thought was pretty interesting. That's that's what Watson, almost a coin toss basically between the two guys, which I guess sort of makes sense, but I would have, based on the head-to-head especially, I would have given more of an edge to Alcaraz, expected to be 60% maybe. Um, so some of the factors that said, since June 2022, Alcaraz had a 51% edge in the power index based on his recent finals appearances at the German and Croatian Open and also online media coverage. And then Alcaraz has beaten Rude twice in their head-to-head history at the 2022 Masters 1000 in Miami, right? Winning that final, the other hardcore uh, final that they faced off in, and the 2021 Marbella Tennis Open, which I believe was on clay. Alcaraz is an ATP rank that is three positions higher than Rude. So those that's what it said what the, what the factors were. It looks like it gave the fans, it didn't give a number, but it looks like it was just above Watson. I would guess somewhere around 55%. Uh, to 51 so the fans predicted Alcaraz had a slightly more of chance higher probability to win the match um so just kind of interesting and the other thing that this reminds me as well is Alcaraz is actually a quarter finalist for the U.S. Open I kind of forgot about this in 2021 he beat Pass in a five setter that I don't remember if that was his the fourth round but it was it was in the, one of those earlier rounds totally upset Pass. that's that's what got me uh, opened my eyes to Alcaraz when I first kind of realized who he was and his gameplay because he played fantastic. I think it was even a fifth set tiebreaker. And Kasparu became the first Norwegian to reach the last eight of the U.S. Open. Uh, we'll look at the um, Watson has a couple stats here real quick, which I thought were pretty interesting. Said so through the semifinals, Kasparu won 70% of points while serving, which is sixth among the 128 competitors. So he does does really well taking care of his serve. And Alcarez, on the meanwhile, is probably better at returning. It says he has a 44%. He wins 44% of points while returning, ranked for fourth best in the field of 128. And Alcarez has won 11% of his points with forehand winners, sixth among players in the field. That's the other thing. Watching him, the dude's going for winner after winner. It's pretty amazing. He came to net 16% of the time, ranked 10th in the field. So you think about some of the people that serve in volley a little bit more. You know, he's... He's kind of just right behind some of those guys, ranked 10th for coming to net a lot. He won 18% of points with winners compared to Rude's 14%. That's a pretty high winner rate. Even for Rude's is pretty high as well, 14%. And Alcaraz won 4% of points with backhand winners versus 3% for Rude. Uh, Rude lost 4% of points with backhand errors versus 5% for Alcaraz. And Rude has made 65% of his errors from the forehand. And he has won 40% of points while returning. So not a huge difference from the 44% of Alcaraz. But again, in tennis, 4% that can be huge over, over the course of the match. So I just thought those were interesting stats, kind of comparing them both. But really, at the end of the day, Watson kind of gave it a coin toss, which I guess the final ended up being tighter. Um, but Alcaraz still, still got the job done. So I thought those were pretty interesting. Long story short, Matt, I think we're going to see a lot more of Alcaraz, obviously, you know, Assuming he's healthy, he's only 19. He can improve on a lot of things uh, for sure, but I think he'll also keep getting better. And I think he can be good on most surfaces. He'll definitely, he's definitely great on clay, definitely great on hardcore grass. I'm not really sure. I think he lost to center in the fourth round, I think, this year. So I don't think he has maybe as much of a, the natural game on, on grass. Even though he's got great hands, I think it's more the movement. 
So we'll see if he can figure that out. But I think he can be great on all surfaces for many, many years to come. And and Casper as well is pretty young. He's what, 23 or 24? So he Yeah, 23. Yeah, so his game is big and he's he's still pretty young. So I think he can have a few really good years. Who else is out there? Sinner, Yannick Sinner is is very young too. I don't care if he's 21 or so, but he's pretty young. He's got a lot of good years left. We'll see a CC pass, you know, as he, I feel like this year was not definitely not as good as last statistically and his results. So we'll see if CC pass can win a slam or, or if he's peaked and if Medvedev can add more titles, I feel like with his talent, he should definitely be adding more titles to his count. But I think that's, that's about what we have today at 1530. As always, please share our podcast with a friend that enjoys tennis. Visit us at cognitionsphere.com. Theme music brought to us by Kevin MacLeod with excerpts from his song, Cool Rock. And until then, until next time, we'll see you on the court.